This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I am Andreas Papilakis. Today is uh, another fun episode. It is our third, is it our third one? It is our third one, yes. It is our third countdown of the Best Picture winners uh, by going through the decades. Uh, And we're sort of right smack dab in post-war America. Uh, And I think this this is probably, this is definitely the strongest group of 10. I don't want to say decade because it isn't really a decade. It just happens to be 10 years. But I think this is the strongest set of 10 years that we have done yet. Uh, it, it starts with uh, 1948 and goes all the way to 1957. What about you? What, what did you think overall? How was this decade for or these this set of 10 years for you? Well, without spoiling which movie I'll be talking about, there was one that I watched early on that I hadn't seen before, and I said, wow, wow, this is this is up there. This is going to be high up there on my list. I know this for a fact. I've seen a few of these, but I know for a fact that this will be up there as well. Ended up being my number six. So that's no, that's not a comment on how I feel less about the movie or anything. It's just we watch so many darn good ones that a movie that I was, I swore would be high up on my list ended up not even making the top five, just barely missing it. So it is how it is. I mean, it's been a very, very strong 10 years. Yes, we had a couple of duds, which we'll get into, but for the most part, even my number seven was something where I sat back and I said, wow, okay, this was terrific. Whereas in the other two episodes so far, Let's say our six to tens usually had a little bit of gray area. Um, we had to struggle of, a little bit to find some nice things to say about some of them. Yeah, we had to try to justify as best as we could. Like, well, the animals in this scene acted well, you know that <laughs> that was okay, you know. But with this, I think except for like our bottom of the barrel material that we got, I mean. There was a lot of positive stuff to say about most of these. Even, like, let's say our second worst, let's say, had some stuff where we sat back and we said, okay, you know what? Without trying to fish for positive things, this was legitimately great. You know, it was only our dead last one that we kind of threw our hands in the air and said, what in God's name was this, you know? But everything else was, to an extent, either pretty decent or absolutely sensational. Sensational. So no, it was it was great, and it might be too early to call it, but I think we won't get another ten years that'll match the quality of this. But I could be wrong. Yeah, I for me, the it was seven great films, two decent films, and one really bad film. Which, considering how we've gone so far, I think is pretty remarkable. Uh, so, so it's something that I'm still really enjoying, especially since before this decade, I had only seen, uh, I think, three of them before. I'd seen, yeah, I'd only seen three of them before. So the other seven were new to me, and it, it was a great experience. Um, now, before we go on talking about what we think were the best of the best pictures, uh, I recorded a segment with uh, Sarah Ricks. Uh, who is uh, also a 
editor on Live in Limbo, and we're continuing this trend where we're going to be talking to uh, to contributors to Live in Limbo about what their personal favorite films are, so we can sort of mix the you know the the personal with the uh, I don't want to say professional that would be rude. Um, how would you how would we describe what we're doing here? The the critical. Yeah, um, there's definitely going to be a sense of what. I would consider us more critical. Yeah. Oh God, this is tough. You're right. Um, I would, I would consider <laughs> us more critical because we're putting ourselves on the line and saying, you know, we studied this. This is how we feel. You know, somebody, somebody like Sarah Ricks isn't claiming themselves to be like a film reviewer. They're stating the kind of movies that that they love. So, um, I guess they have more of a comfort knowing that they're not as on the line as we might be. So, um. Yeah, so... I don't know what you call that. <laughs> there you have it. Let's go listen to Sarah and as she talks about her favorite films. And like I said in the previous segue, we're now joined by Sarah Ricks to do the second installment of what I hope will be a continuing part of where we're asking contributors from Live in Limbo to sort of talk about, you know, some of their favorite movies and, and the reasoning behind it. Um... If you didn't hear the first one around when we, we interviewed Sean Chin, um, was to sort of mix the more analytical sort of stuff that Andreas and I are doing with some of the more personal things. So we get to know some uh, some of our contributors a little bit better. Uh, like I said, this week we're joined by Sarah Ricks, the music editor of Live in Limbo. Uh, how are you doing today, Sarah? I'm doing really well. Thanks, Dakota. Excellent. Uh, I guess the first easiest question will be, um, what was the last movie you watched? Uh, the last one I saw, I saw the new James Bond film, Spectre. Oh, yeah? Uh, what'd you think of it? Uh, I thought it was good in terms of the action. Um, the plot was kind of, like, eye-roll worthy. <laughs> that uh, that usually sometimes happens with, with some of the James Bond ones, especially the older ones. They seem to move away from the eye-rolling stuff, but it seems <laughs> like it came back. That That's true. Uh, I think Daniel Craig makes a good James Bond, and to be honest, I haven't seen any of the other movies outside of his so he's the only bond i know um i don't know it just it wasn't a movie i walked away being like they did a really good job with it and i think they could have so it was a bit disappointing in that regard i hear what you're saying that's uh that's a movie that andres and i will be talking about in a, a future episode uh while also trying to compare sean connery to daniel craig sure <laughs> I, hear good, I hear good things about Sean Connery. Um, but my favorite thing about Spectre was that the girl in front of me at the movie, when Sam Smith's uh, opening song came on, she was shazamming it. Um, <laughs> and she did that three times. Like, she did it once, didn't believe it was Sam Smith, tried it again, got Sam Smith again, closed her app, checked her network connection to make sure like her internet was turned on for Shazam, opened it again to Shazam it once more, and then, like, she realized it was actually Sam Smith, and she looked up at the screen, and it literally said, Sam Smith. And I was just sitting behind her, really dying a little on the inside. <laughs> she, she was convinced it was that guy from that Disclosure song, though. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's pretty funny, actually. Um, now, you mostly write about music and, and cover concerts but you actually do have a bit of a, a film background uh can you can you talk a little bit about that sure i got my undergrad in film for some reason 
Yeah, uh, I went to U of T and did their four-year undergrad program and majored in cinema studies. So I I should know what I'm talking about. I don't, but I should. You should. Okay. Well, what what made you decide to take that program? Uh, if I'm being a hundred percent honest, I I was first enrolled in political science and I hated it, like with a fiery, fiery passion. And I had picked. Uh, a cinema studies intro course just because it seemed like an interesting thing at the time. And then for my second year, I just decided to go full into it. Was it something that you enjoyed? Yeah. I think of all the undergrad degrees I could have gotten from UFT, that one was probably the one I, I would have liked to do the most. So it worked out. Well, that's good. Well then maybe I should start looking forward to some more movie reviews from you. <laughs> no. Probably not. Okay, then. Uh, too many concerts to go to. Too many <laughs> you, you are the, the record setter for that. I don't think anyone will ever top you for that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, wear it like a badge of honor. I do. Thank you. Uh, now, I guess uh, I want the reason why I brought you on was to talk about some of your favorite movies. What would you, what would you say your, your usual, you know, genre of choice or style? Like if you're at home and, you know, you fire up Netflix, what's something that you're usually looking for? Okay. So fun story. I don't actually have Netflix. Really? You're must be one of the few people in the world who don't. Yeah. I get treated like I have the plague when I say this. I don't have Netflix. Um, at least not yet. I would like to get it eventually, but not, I don't know. I don't have any reason to have it right now. Um, but my favorite movies, uh, my favorite genre of movies, actually, like, I really like dystopian movies. So post-apocalyptic movies are ones I generally gravitate towards. Yeah. Uh, do you like more of the sort of the, the science fiction type ones or more of the action-adventure style ones? I think more of the um, action-adventure style ones. Like, sci-fi for me isn't a big thing. I, I don't need to really see the new Star Wars. I will, but I don't really need to see it. So, yeah, I think I like just the action part of it. That's cool. Okay, well then, uh, let's let's get right into it. What would you What would you say your first favorite movie is? Is this an, is will this be in order, or is this you know just your top three? Is your top three? Uh, probably the top three is the top three. Um, so my my. I guess my one favorite movie, and then the other two are tied. My favorite movie in the world is Ocean's Eleven, which is the remake, not the original. Okay. Um, my second favorite movie is uh, The Fantastic Mr. Fox. That's a great one. Thanks. And third is Children of Men. Wow. Those are those are some really solid choices. All right. Let's, uh, let's go first into Ocean's Eleven. Have you seen the original one as well? I have seen the original. It's yeah. pretty cheesy. It is really cheesy. But, you know, it's sort of, I think, the, the remake sort of took the cheesiness in stride while adding a, a pretty cool new twist onto it. What, what makes that one exciting? Is it like the, the heist stuff or the uh, comedy? It's the heist stuff. And I think it's also just like seeing those actors interact with one another. Like you don't often get to see them all in, in one movie, let alone in a movie that good. And it's a movie that I can return to again and again and again. Like I can always watch it. It doesn't matter if I've seen it 40 times. It's There's always something new, I think. It's the type of movie that will usually be on TV and, you know, you could have missed the first hour and, and still tune in and be like, oh, yes, the, the good part's coming up or whatever you, you feel about it. Yeah, exactly. It's it's just, it's an easy movie to like, which I think is why I like it. That's good. Uh, now, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, that's probably one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies. Uh, so I guess that's safe to say that that's your favorite Wes Anderson movie. 
Absolutely. Yeah. What, uh, what about that one? Do you like more than say his, his live action ones? Because that's his only animated one. Yeah. I, I don't know. There's just, there's something that he can do with animation that he can't do with real life characters. And I think all his movies are really good, but with the fantastic Mr. Fox, it stands out because it is the only animated movie. And because there's just such a sense of whimsy to it. Um, like his other movies are great and really quirky and everything, but like this one combines a lot of things and it's just so much fun to watch. Like I walked into the theater not knowing much about it and I know I, I remember having to convince everyone I was going with to go see it. And I think we all walked out of the theater being like, damn, that was a really good movie. That was really adorable and also really funny and smart. Who would you say is uh, your favorite character in that? Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot. There is a lot. They're all they're all great. Um, I don't know if I can pick a favorite. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. I, I really like uh, Willem Dafoe's Rat, <laughs> of course, uh, and uh, Jason Schwartzman as, as the noodly son. Yes, <laughs> I mean it's just it's an adorable movie, and it's another one that I can watch again and again and again. I, I would say that you know Life Aquatic is one of my top three favorite movies, but. Fantastic Mr. Fox is probably my second favorite Wes Anderson movie. It really is a great one. And if you haven't seen it for whatever reason, because it looks too weird, I think that's one that everyone should sort of check out. Yeah, I think it's like a hidden surprise. Mm -hmm. And he does he does a really good job with it. I know from, from what I read, he wasn't really involved in the day-to-day -day direction of the actual puppets mm -hmm. um, because he doesn't have that background, more of, you know, the feeling and the look and things like that and working more on, on the cast recording their, their parts. So it's sort of like saying Tim Burton, Nightmare Before Christmas, you know. He, he didn't actually direct it, he produced it, but he had such a big... His presence is, is really felt, and you can definitely say the same thing about Wes Anderson with that movie, that his presence is felt. It feels, you know, if they made a live-action version of it, you can see his characters, like, those characters exist in the Wes Anderson world. Yeah, and just, like, the people that he got into it, I think, was really impressive as well. Like, Meryl Streep and George Clooney and, you know, Bill Murray, like, all the regulars. Yeah, all the other regulars, yeah, Owen regulars. Wilson and Schwartzman, <laughs> and there, I'm sure there's some others that I'm forgetting. Uh, yep. It's been a while since I've seen that one. I probably have to revisit that one. You should do it. You're giving me a good reason to, talking okay. about it. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, you said Children of Men. That's sort of a, a bit of a detour from, from the other two, are pretty light and funny, and you know, Children of Men is a pretty serious movie. Is that your, 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 serious, your serious one when you, know, you don't want to laugh? <laughs> yes, I'm a well-rounded individual, Dakota. Um, but like, as I said, the dystopian movies, um, that one just really stuck with me for some reason. Uh, I love the long shots that Alfonso Cuarón, sorry, I don't know how to say his name, how he does like the movies and how everything's really drawn out. And I just think it's a really well done movie. It's it's really famous for the the two specific long shots, the car chase sequence, and then at the end with the baby. But I think, you know, there's so much more to that movie than than people will probably remember it. When you rewatch I rewatched it for the first time last year, I think. And there was a lot of it, especially the Michael Caine parts that really stuck with me. Mm, yeah. It's it's a it's a good movie. I don't I don't really know what to say about it except that I enjoy watching it. Um Yeah. It's it's really one of those, you know, marvelous 
feats of, of movie making where there, there's just a lot more going on to it. And, and Clive Owen gives a really strong performance. And I think the fact that like, as crazy as it sounds of people not being able to give birth anymore, the way they, they actually set it up and explain it, it doesn't really seem that far fetched of an issue, uh, which I think, you know, sort of resonates with people when they watch where you're like, damn, you know, maybe something, some sort of illness, something like that can happen. Yeah, and I tried to read the book that it was based on, and honestly, I couldn't get through it. So I think they did a really good job of adapting it. What was the name of the book? Was it the same title? No, it wasn't. Uh, I'll have to look it up because I'm not sure what it is offhand. Okay. I didn't know it was based on a book. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. Um, So if you don't have netflix at home which i'm not going to shun you that's great for you how do you do you watch movies at home do you do you buy dvds sort of through like the dollar bins what, what do you do at home um i do have a collection of dvds it's not huge by any standards it's just mostly my favorites um i don't know i i guess the movies i really want to see i go see in theaters yeah do you do you go quite often yes and no i find i go in spurts it always seems that way. It always seems like everything comes out within like the same month. And you're like, ah, oh, I have to go and see everything. And you're at the same theater three times in two weeks or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about your favorite movie, Sarah. Well, thanks for having me, Dakota. And, uh, you know, all three of them are, are pretty well known. So hopefully people know what you're talking about. Um, and if you haven't seen them, I recommend them as well um get to know sarah ricks by watching some of her favorite movies do it um and the children of men book is called children of men oh is it okay yeah. who, do you know who it's by uh pb james and a writer i have even heard of yeah well there you go guess i have some uh some researching to do then yes well thank you so much for talking to us today sarah thanks dakota Heart pounding for more She's on the floor She's hardly breathing Calm struck by her words This dangerous time I am there kneeling Stop Heart as betrayed Eyes fade to grey She's done feeding All right, so we've gotten all of the nitty-gritty stuff out of the way, all of the housekeeping, so to speak, uh, and, and now we're sort of going to get into the actual actual meat of this episode. Um, but I think something that some people need to be familiar with is during this time in American cinema history. It was a very weird time. Uh, there's two things that we sort of need to talk about a little bit. There's the House of Un-American Activities, uh, otherwise known as HUAC, and uh, the Hollywood Code or the Hayes Code, both of which 
were sort of in full swing right at the same time. The Hayes Code was from earlier, uh, from the 30s, but it kept going on until about now, this time period. And HUAC was sort of just, you know, getting right underway and, and sort of uh, at the heart of what was happening with it. Do you want to say some words about what HUAC was for those who might not know Andreas? Sure, I could try to give a simplified <laughs> version um, of what this highly complicated committee was. Um, the House of Un-American Activities Committee was formed together in, let's say, the 30s to try and stop like Nazi activities and and anything that seemed, you know, I guess, I guess pro-Nazi, but it kind of started spreading into other things, like being like anti-Japanese, I guess, with uh, the whole Pearl Harbor incident, um, anti-communistic, and and so forth. But it's really it really started to hit around the time period that we're going to be looking at now, which is the late '40s and the early '50s, because of the infamous Hollywood blacklist, which started, I believe, uh, 19, 1947, it says here, which affected a lot of the filmmakers around that time, including ones that we'll be looking into now, where some of our best films, you know, some of these people couldn't actually say that they were part of the film because they were put on this blacklist. Now, this blacklist was originally to try and to try and find people who had, like, let's say, pro-communist things to say and to try and stop them from doing that. But it got really it got really out of hand, and it was almost like a witch hunt, I would say, where, you know, if, if you sneeze the wrong way, you might be put on a blacklist. You know, it was, um, it was really, again, infamous for its time. It's kind of seen as, like, this ridiculous thing now, but back then it was a very serious ordeal where a lot of big names were basically shunned because of this. And, and as a result, um, a lot of people just stopped working in the U.S. because they didn't, want to, they didn't want to be threatened with this supposed blacklist that could ruin and tarnish their entire careers. So um, we'll see a little bit of that, especially with, um, again, who was making these films, the actual content of these films, and, and so forth. Yeah. It was a, a pretty crazy time. The the Red Scare under Joseph McCarthy, who Senator Joseph McCarthy, who was sort of at the center of all of this. Uh, and it, it really is sort of a black mark on, on Hollywood that so many people either stopped working entirely or had to uh, have their work done in secret under false names, especially the writers, whereas actors just weren't allowed to appear on screen at all. So it was kind of a crazy time period. The other thing that we were talking about was uh, the Hollywood Production Code or the Hayes Code, um, which basically was the precursor to the the MPAA, which rates films. And it basically was things like how you uh, you couldn't swear, you there couldn't be nudity, there couldn't be sex. Uh, the bad guy had to either die or be arrested at the end. You couldn't sell, uh, you couldn't show, uh, authority figures like, uh, police or things like that being killed. Uh, blood on screen had to be minimal. It was a whole bunch of really, really ridiculous things. Um, because 
there was this movement of uh, worrying about like the won't somebody think of the children sort of moment. Um, and so in, in early Hollywood and foreign film in general, in the, the 20s and 30s, if you look back, there's quite a bit of things that, you know, would seem to be risque and things like that, but that was just the norm. And then from the the 40s onward, everything got a whole lot tamer. Now, that didn't stop the great filmmakers. The great filmmakers still were able to uh, get around it by uh, things like suggestion or the way their shots were set up and things like that, where, you know, you had to look at it with a bit more of a critical eye to understand exactly what was going on. And they were, I think it made their films more successful. Uh, people like uh, Otto Preminger or, um, Oh man, I'm, I'm blanking on his name who did, uh, the apartment. Um, Billy Wilder, Billy Wilder. Yes. Billy Wilder was another director who, who was able to get around the code very well. Alfred Hitchcock did it as well. A whole bunch of them where they were, they used euphemisms more so than, uh, actually showing what they weren't allowed to. Um, so it was pretty crazy. And then, so even though the, the code officially ended, um, in the early forties, it was still sort of in place by the studios themselves being like, Hey, we're not going to be the first ones to, you know, start showing nudity or swearing on screen yet. And so it wasn't until the sixties, uh, that it sort of moved away completely from this ridiculous code. Yeah. But what we're going to see now, as you said, are some deviations on this and some attempts to try and break out and, this is the first significant era that we're going to be covering that you'll see a lot of actual success with doing this. You know, you'll have, let's say, you know, main characters that might not make it until the end. You have, you have themes that wouldn't have been present earlier on. You have a little bit of swearing. It wasn't a lot, but I mean, it's a lot more than we've seen for the past 20 or so years, you know, so we start to see a little, a few signs of this. And because of this, we're getting some riskier films. We're getting some films that are saying louder things that are going the extra mile as, as you will see. And that's why so many of these are rated so highly because it's stuff that we just haven't quite seen being tackled yet. And it's exciting. I can't wait to go over this. Yeah. All right. Well, with, uh, without further ado, I think let's, uh, get started. We're going to go through, uh, Picks 10 through 6 in this episode. Um, so, at number 10, the worst film of this. And normally, I would not say the worst. Normally, I would say it ended up being the lowest. No, the worst film of this decade was The Greatest Show on Earth. Which, which it came, wasn't. <laughs> which came out in 1952. It was directed by Cecil B. DeMille. Um, and it's basically... Uh, it's sort of like the the dramatic lives of trapeze artists, a clown, an elephant elephant trainer against the background of a circus spectacle. Uh, but basically, what it was was a commercial for Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey, done really, really poorly. Uh, Everything is far too melodramatic and over the top. Right at the very beginning, you have a uh, lead actor Charlton Heston yelling, and you're just like, "Whoa, whoa! We just got into the movie. Why is why are you?" so up in arms already it was just way too emotional from the start and 
I think it's it's hard to even pick out things that were done well. It overused rear projection, which I understand this is one of the, the first... The other thing about this decade is we keep switching back and forth between color and black and white because this is right at the same time where some films were still being released in black and white and some are in color. And so you, they're using tons of rear projection, but I don't think they know exactly how to do it with color film and so it just looks really terrible and cheesy um and then it's got this weird editing to it where it's super jumpy and they use swipe cuts and, and a whole bunch of other things and then there's this really awkward four-way romance which makes as little sense as a four-sided triangle if you understand what i mean uh you've got like these two guys and two girls and they keep switching between who they love and none of it makes any sense at all and frankly I don't even care um I guess if I want to say a positive about it is uh some of the animals in it were good as you said the animal <laughs> acting was good yeah I know the elephants are terrific now um as you said it, it, it was basically a commercial but it was also a very bad one I don't know if it's even possible to explain, yeah, as you said, just how bad the rear projection was. It was as if it was awful green screen editing before green screens even existed. That's exactly what it looks like. You'll have a shot where, let's say, Charlton Heston is sitting on a fence, and it'll cut to him being closer, but the background won't change. It's, it's absolutely mind-boggling that they got away with this so many times back then. Now, you know... If it was at least a good commercial, but it it isn't because of the bad projection and the bad editing. A lot of the stunts and stuff that you see, yes, they're terrific, but you just you don't care because it's it's so badly done that it's actually annoying. Now, if you look at I don't know the Great Zigfield or something that a film that did something similar, you know, even the Broadway Melody, they at least I guess because of technical purposes had to stay put and focus solely on the stage. Now, because this movie cuts so many times and in so many awkward angles and with so many awkward effects, you don't get the sense that you're at the circus there as hard as it tries. You know, you could cut to as many kids in the audience eating ice cream going, gee, Wilkers, dad, look at that, you know, but you don't feel like you're there. You feel like you're forced to be there. And that's not the greatest show on earth. And then, as you said, there were awkward as hell storylines. But we haven't even gotten into like the, the weirdest of them all, where you have, you know, an actor we've seen a lot in this podcast for these Oscar shows, James Stewart, acclaimed actor James Stewart, playing a clown who's in hiding because he accidentally killed his wife and is fleeing from the cops. That alone is so hard to take seriously that I don't even know where to begin. So I won't. Do you have any other thoughts? That's because I'm going insane. Yeah, you you missed out. You missed out on the best part of that James Stewart story. Not only is he a clown who is fleeing the cops, you never see him without his clown makeup on. That's yes. how ridiculous it is. And of course, like it's it's so silly because everyone else, all the other circus performers, they get out of their costumes, and yet here's jimmy stewart with his clown makeup on doing his oh i'm jimmy stewart little shtick thing that he has with his his voice uh it's quite funny if it wasn't so sad and pathetic i think it's just his way of not wanting to be seen in the film um 
And I think one other weird thing was like there's this weird side plot of like these gangsters, extortionists that like they come and go seemingly only to inject drama and play almost no real part until the end train crash. Um, and I don't mean the movie as a train wreck. Well, it was. There was a literal train wreck in it. Uh, now, this is something I'm having a hard time saying that at least with all the, the movies that I don't like, there's at least something that you can at least say, hey, this advanced film, this moved it forward, this was the best of the era sort of thing. That's sort of the the minimum bar that it needs to pass to at least be worthy of best picture. I didn't think this train wreck uh, was that great, but I think you thought a little bit differently about that. Well, I found it in a Brian De Palma kind of way, both electric and also highly hokey. Maybe that's why it was so electric, because you see the crash and you can tell that it's a model set smashing into stuff and there's a toy car with toy people in it and, and it gets thrown up into the air like like a frisbee i don't know it was ridiculous but then you have some aspects of it where it's like okay you know what this isn't so bad um you know like i'm getting something out of this which it's sad to say i got more out of a bunch of people dying in a train set than i did from the actual circus acts but that's that's beside the point i think I don't think there were any qualities of this movie that did actually make it win. It solely won, I guess, because of what we were saying earlier with this whole HUAC and blacklisting and and um, being careful of stepping on the society's toes that basically forbid Fred Zinnemann's film High Noon from winning, which that was the supposed favorite. It won all sorts of other awards, including Best Actor. Now... We will be bumping into a film of his later on, which I guess shows a little bit of progression in the film industry and I guess the awards industry. But having said that, they instead gave it to this film from uh, Cecil B. DeMille, who his name is always tossed around for success, but it's a shame that this is his his Academy Award winning film because I, I don't think this could come even close to some of the stuff that he's touched. I it, It's a circus act. Basically, that's all it is. <laughs> Let's move on from this film because, you know, uh, there's no there's nothing left to talk about here. But, you know, we have our 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 second lowest film, let's say, which, you know, we had some negative things to say about it. But at the same time, at least here, we have some legitimate praise in a sense. It's based on the Jules Verne novel. It's around the world in 80 days, a 1956 film directed by Michael Anderson, and it is one of the first films to highly implement cameo appearances, and boy, does it exploit the hell out of that. Now, it is a simple concept where you have a rich journalist who, oh no, a rich, a rich um, let's say a sociolite, let's say, that wants to prove that he could go around the world in 80 days. Simple concept, happens to work, I guess, and he visits all of these countries and sees all of these different scenarios with his sidekick who provides comic relief, rescues a princess. Yep. That's, that's pretty much it. There's not much substance there, but um, I guess before we go into the woes of its story, let's at least go on a positive note. Cause we were busy crapping on Sesame DeMille's film. Why don't we at least start off with 
how absolutely spectacular that cinematography was. Do you want to give us a little bit on that? Yeah, it was it was absolutely gorgeous. I think this was one of the first the first films like this where it was sort of like a globe trotting film, and you know, instead of just being like, oh, let's stick a camera in front of a monument and say, okay, this is X country, Y country, Z country. They did a really great job using a lot of wide angles to show, sort of show the the scope and size of this beautiful uh, these beautiful areas that they're going in. There, there's a scene early on when they're riding in a hot air balloon, and I think they're trying to get to Paris or something, but they end up going to Spain, I think. And it's just gorgeous watching this balloon sort of float across the horizon, done in a very graceful way, where you can't help but sort of be mesmerized by it. Um, I think also the movie's quite funny. It does a really good job sort of satirizing the this upper crust English persona, um, you know, making fun of people, almost in a... Um, uh, I'm trying to figure out a, a good way to describe this. Um, it, it's very like, ooh, we can use our money to buy whatever we want, but in reality, they can't. It's it's sort of it's sort of one of the things where you have to see it to understand it. Um, David Niven, who's the star of it, who's also known for uh, being a, a one-time Bond actor who didn't do very well at it, um, is this very good sort of OCD. Uh, type of character uh, leading the charge. And he has a, a, a counterpart with him, Passepartout, who is this uh, Spanish-speaking sort of manservant type of guy who uh, who is, does plenty of physical comedy. And I actually really enjoyed some of the stuff that he was doing. Um, he was basically a, a version of um, Charlie Chaplin's The Tramp. Did you notice that he dressed exactly like The Tramp? Actually, now that you mention it, yeah, no, it's it's uncanny, actually. Uh, Passport 2, which was played by the famous um, Hispanic comedian Kenton Flass, if I could pronounce that correctly, um, did, a, did a superb job, actually, because I found there were a lot of problems with the story. A lot of it just didn't add up or wasn't necessary, but you had the great comedic, the great comedic duo, as you said, of both Niven and Kenton Flass that kind of put sugar on top of something that wasn't very sweet you know we had the great cinematography but the story just fell flat a lot of the time but because of how stunning it was and because of how you know as you said funny it was at times it wasn't a completely unbearable experience it was actually three hours of okay i could forgive this i could forgive that a little bit maybe not putting shirley mclean in um a very racist outfit but you know that um, those were the times, I guess, but you know, a lot of other things were a lot more forgivable because of, I guess, just how charming it was in both aesthetic and, and I guess through its performances. Now, uh, speaking of the performances, we have like dozens and dozens that, that's, that's putting it on a small, on a small level, almost like 50 or more, I don't even know, like countless, let's say, countless cameos from big people who appear for a little bit, or they appear for literal seconds. You have, you know, acclaimed actor Peter Lorre, for instance. You have Marlene Dietrich just appearing in a, in a saloon for like maybe 10 seconds. You have 
Frank Sinatra turning to the camera for literally two seconds, and suddenly now he's in the film, and now you have to go see it because Frank Sinatra's in it. You know, acclaimed Shakespearean actor John Gilgood's in it as well. You know, there are just so many people that just come and go that you don't know where to begin. I don't know if it translates as well now, because now it's just kind of silly, and we're used to this this idea that you can have cameos in a film, but maybe back then it felt like you're seeing these familiar faces around the world. I don't know. What do you think was the sole purpose of this? Um, that's tough to say. It could just be that, you know, it's a way to sell tickets by saying, uh, can you count how many celebrities are in the film sort of thing? Or, you know, in a commercial, they could show a snapshot of all these people that are in it. I'm not, I'm not too sure exactly what the motivation was other than that they were able to do it. So I think that might have been reason enough um another another thing that i really liked it there's this stunning one one take sequence of a flamenco dancer dancing on a table when they were in spain and watching that performance was definitely was definitely one of the greatest things i'd ever seen just because it it was so well done. It was shot so interestingly. And you have, up until this point, David Niven, who is very uptight and not even cracking a smile. You could see him watching in the background, basically really enjoying it and and not not being in character, just like everyone else was sort of astounded by uh, this this dancer that was, he was just so good doing this great routine. Um, and that was pretty fun. Um, and I also thought, like, um, there's some pretty interesting and, uh, inventive camera angles, like, uh, ones from like the perspective of the, the, the various forms of transportation going. So, you know, there's a camera set up on the front of the train, um, one of, um, the hot air balloon lifting off, like a really, really interesting, unique perspective angles that I thought was, was pretty fun. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, again, this movie falls flat a lot, but with some of the things that it does, you know, it does very well. And it's not just aesthetically like that. I think one of the few times the progression of the story works superbly, I think let's let's just say the best part of this movie was in Spain, you know, with the flamenco dancing and with the Canton Flash scene where it's a bit overlong, but where he's bullfighting. I mean, it was entertaining. It was it was flashy, it was engaging, but it also served as a great transition to when they go to a different country. Now, I don't remember which country it was. Um, you know where I'm going with this, right? Uh, what country was it? It was in, was it in uh, South Asia? I don't remember, but he goes to another country, he sees a bull, he tries to use his newly found bullfighting ways to try and get rid of this bull, but over there, you know, bulls are sacred animals so he just gets chased after and i thought that was i thought that was highly creative actually and and a great a great way of representing just how different cultures are in different countries and i wish they implemented more of that actually because it seems like they kind of just transitioned to each country from there on out yeah that was that was in india and that was a that was a large cow basically and so that yeah. the whole bit of it was that cows are sacred in india and he like sort of slap the cow on the butt sort of thing and try to <laughs> dance with it almost. And that was seems offensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, now I guess moving on uh, to uh, number seven, we have uh, From Here to Eternity, which came out in 1953. It's about uh, how in 1941, 
uh, in Hawaii, a private is cruelly punished for not boxing on his team's unit, while his captain's wife and second-in-command are falling in love. Those are two different storylines that are going on. Um, it was directed by Fred Zinneman, who you mentioned about directing High Noon, and here he is again. Um, and it stars Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Cliff, Deborah Kerr, Donna Reed, Frank Sinatra, uh, and um, it's... It's not really a war movie, not until the end. It's more about what happens during um, army life when war isn't going on. Um, I found a lot of the, the early military stuff clearly looked like a, a future influence on a film like uh, Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Um, and you could tell that this is, this is a film that sort of suffered at trying to get around the the Hollywood code and not really doing it as successfully as some of the other counterparts. Maybe that was just me. Um, and I, I thought the, the love plot line between Burt Lancaster and Deborah Kerr didn't really seem to go anywhere. You know, there's the famous um, shot of them kissing uh, in the, the water on the beach with the waves mm -hmm. rolling over them. But that moment lasted like, two seconds, then they were off, and then they were having an argument, so it wasn't even really that sexy, memorable of a love scene. Um, so yeah, I'm. It's a, it's a film where I think it has some stuff working really well for it, and other stuff, it just sort of a bit head-scratching about why is this included, it sort of takes away from the plot. Uh, what about you? What are your thoughts? I think I like this movie a little bit more than you did. Um, I do see where you're getting uh, with this, especially with, I guess, the, the iconic scene. Maybe, I don't know what it was like back then, maybe it was just solely advertised, because if you think about it, Gone with the Wind is often projected as, like, this big romantic movie, but in reality, like, they never love each other at the same time, you know? So we have something like that a little bit here, where it's this this idea we have going into the movie, and it's not exactly the way that it is, you know? As you said, that iconic scene lasts very shortly. A lot of the time, it's debating... You know, should I should I move my ranking so so we could get married and and uh, do this divorce and and it's all like all of these legalities and, and plotting and and arguing and and uh, I you're, you're not exactly who I thought you were. So the, the actual beaching itself is very short. Maybe it was a way to try promote the fact that it was in Hawaii, I guess, or stationed. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not quite sure, but uh, moving on from that, um, I did like it because it's it's one of those films where we've covered a lot of these actually, where it's not so much plot based as much as it is. Let's put a scenario, let's put these characters and see how they kind of boil and and see what kind of chemistry there is. We've seen a lot of that in these Oscar podcasts so far, and I think this one does a pretty good job at it. Actually, it's not the most spectacular I've ever seen, but it does a pretty good job because you get different mentalities within I guess within the war barracks and it, it's weird for some reason you know the greatest the greatest years of our lives or whatever it did the same thing where it's like the rule of three when it comes to war you have to have three people and their three different lives and how they're affected but um we got the same thing here we have Burt Lancaster again with um the affair you have Montgomery Cliff who's a fighter who's trying to not be a fighter who, who get, keeps getting egged on and and coax, let's say, 
and until he finally snaps and he gives the crowd what, what they want, but is it what he wants for himself? And then you have Frank Sinatra, who's seen as this this charming, you know, the, like kind of like the jokester, charming guy of the barracks. But you know, he he gets he gets into cahoots with Ernest Borgnine, who I'm not used to seeing being an asshole. But here you go. Um, I guess you see everything once, and you know, the two of them have their own kind of rifts that kind of spirals and escalates. And that's when you see like, you know, Frank Sinatra going from like. Hollywood sweetheart, charming, crooning piano player to being somebody who snaps. And it's interesting that they got these good-looking, rugged men that they that are seen as like these these American symbols and showing how they can snap in different ways, you know, whether it's emotionally, whether it's through reputation or whether it's psychologically. There's a lot of that. Now, I as much as I loved the directing at the end with the Pearl Harbor sequence where you see like the Japanese planes coming above and shooting. And I thought some of that was directed extremely well. Sans the, the, the B footage that kind of looked out of place. I don't know how I feel a hundred percent about it. It, I don't know if it feels like it's tossed in just to change the plot or if it actually boils up to that point really well where you see these people live until that point. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it was kind of thrown in? I, I'm really on the fence with this. Yeah, um, I hear what you're saying about how it might seem a little thrown in. Maybe it's just sort of a way to look at like sometimes all of our little petty, petty tiffs aren't that don't really have much of a purpose because you never know when Japan is going to bomb your island. I don't, I, <laughs> I don't know. I thought, frankly, that the, the Pearl Harbor attack stuff was probably the least boring part of this movie. This movie was incredibly boring, and I thought Frank Sinatra was absolutely terrible. He won a Best Supporting Actor, yet really? he is so wooden and seems so out of place in this film. I, like... <laughs> At least all the other army guys look like they could be in the army. Frank Sinatra was so scrawny, and he, you know he'd take his shirt off, and you're like, "How are you considered a man amongst all these other you know big tough guys?" So I didn't like him at all. Um, I he was okay. I don't know. Really? Yeah, I don't think I don't think he was terrific. I'd have to see who he beat because you know some years you just have a weak category and he could sneak away with a win. But I, I didn't think he was too bad. Now. You brought up something off off the air where you said that he blinks a lot and he kind of looks nervous on set. I saw that a little bit, especially earlier on in the film. But for some of it, I thought he was fine. I thought he maybe he won because of his charm, because he could deliver some lines pretty, pretty smoothly. I'm not quite sure. Again, if it was a weak year, but I didn't find him nearly as bad as you as you did, actually. Yeah. Well, there there was one scene that I thought was great of between um, Lancaster and Clift when they're um, when they're drunk near the end and they're sitting in the middle of a road and I thought that was a great performance by both of them where there's a lot of emotion and you could actually believe what was going on. Uh, now, rumor was one of them actually was drunk when they filmed it, so you know maybe that helped. But still, being able to act that well while drunk is quite a feat in itself. Not until Easy Rider do we see Jack Nicholson doing the same thing with marijuana. Now, <laughs> um, yeah, aside from that, I like the movie a little bit more than, than you, as I said. I didn't find it boring, per se, but I can easily see why it would be boring, because you're basically waiting for stuff to happen. A lot of it is just character analysis and development. A little bit of it is actual plot, because, again, you're just literally watching these three men 
with an Aberics seeing what happens when when these buttons are being pressed. Like, how does Sinatra react? How does Clift react? How does Lancaster react? But I don't know. I thought it was great. I, I think um, I think the director Zinnemann's done some better work. High Noon being one of those films. Uh, An Unstory being another one of those films, which I which I consider, and I've said this often, if you know me, um, one of Audrey Hepburn's most underrated films. But, you know, from here to eternity, being the film of his that won, I think it was, it, it, it's okay. It's pretty good. I thought it was pretty good. He's done better, but, you know, so be it. Now, moving on, we actually have a tie. So perhaps we could put these in chronological order, which one came out first. Does that sound good? Uh, yeah, sure. You can do it however you want. You're, you're the one doing this lead in. Okay. So let's, let's go into this tie, which we've never had before. This is, I guess, for sixth place because, um, there is no technical seventh outside of this, but let's go with the film that came first. Um, speaking of, you know, charming men back then, back in the fifties that, um, that were known musically, let's say. This is a weak lead-in, but I'm trying my best. Um, we have the Vincent Minnelli film, which is considered one of the best musical films you could see. And in some ways, I can agree. In some ways, I'll disagree, and we'll get into that. We have An American in Paris, which stars, you know, probably my absolute favorite musical dancing actor, Gene Kelly, who I thought was absolutely sensational in this. Now... Aside from, let's say, like a story that was kind of by the numbers, a little bit Hollywoody, a little bit hoaxy, this had what I consider some of the absolute best musical numbers I've seen in any single film. I mean, I was absolutely astounded. And let me tell you, the amount of artistry and the amount of imagination in this, which some of it beats Singing in the Rain even, which I consider my all-time favorite Gene Kelly film and possibly my favorite musical for that kind of reason, um, just some of it was so imaginative and so electrifying that this immediately pushed a lot of the story woes out of the way and, and it increased the rating for, for myself, actually. Um, I guess to try and give a little bit of a background, you have an American in Paris, as, as the film says, and um, he's, he's trying to be a painter and, you know, he's a struggling artist. He, you know, he has the kids that, that come past his complex and say hello and stuff but he ends up he ends up finding a love interest that he's trying to pursue as you could see in a lot of gene kelly films i guess now um skip all of that and focus on the dancing that happens around it and you have a lot of very ingenious ideas where you you'll have like this one scene where he's trying to He's trying to conceptualize what th this woman means to him and what she could be. And you see, you see her different takes of her personality through dance and just the very different dancing styles, the different colors being used, the different music being used was absolutely incredible how, how all of this was pulled off. And that's like near the beginning, never mind this amazing, amazing, surreal dreamlike sequence at the end where basically all of gene kelly's paintings and pictures come to life in in paris with drawings and paintings and all of these brushstrokes and and sketch lines coming to life dancing and being in unison absolutely 
gorgeous. Now, I think you'll agree with me with a lot of the points that I'm having here, right? Do I even have time to say anything? Wow, you went on quite a while for that. Sorry, um, I, I I got mesmerized by <laughs> by Gene Kelly and his and his stunning smile. But anyways, I uh, sorry, I'll I'll leave the floor to you now. <laughs> <laughs> I think Gene Kelly might have won uh, most charming man on earth uh, during the sequence uh, when he's singing "I've Got Rhythm" to uh, to the children to the to the neighborhood Parisian children. It's just absolutely great piece of dancing, acting, and singing. It like I, I fully agree with what you were saying. Everything about his performance and the way it's all set up is, is done gorgeously. Like this is the way a musical should be made. Uh, it's funny. It's entertaining. There's at least somewhat of a coherent structure to the story, uh, and it's shot beautifully. Because what what point of having a well danced movie is it if it isn't shot well either? Um, I think, you know, it does a, to go into some of the more smaller points of it, I think it does a really interesting way of introducing the three main characters by giving them all a voiceover intro, uh, where they sort of, you know, say, this is my life and this is who I am, this is what uh, my dreams and aspirations are. So I think that was a pretty good way to to fully learn and get to know who these characters are in such a quick manner while showing them going about their daily lives. Um, now, I, I think you sort of played over the fact that there is a, a love triangle in this one as well, where Gene Kelly and another man both fall in love with the same woman. Um, and, you know, that's fine and all. And you're talking about this great, you know, sort of fantasy dance sequence at the end where all of his paintings come to life. Um, and, and I think, you know, even if that was done today, I think that would still be mesmerizing and groundbreaking, yellow, the fact of when it was done. Uh, my only real tiff with the movie is that uh, this woman, uh, played by uh, Leslie Caron, uh, decides that she wants to go with her other suitor, her French suitor. Uh, Gene does this whole big song and dance, sad thing about how he, he's so, so upset that he lost her. And then literally the last shot of the movie is her leaving this other man for Gene Kelly and this other guy is just standing there shrugging his shoulders to be like, what are you going to do? And that sort of really bugged me where it's just like, oh, you ended on this great, great 20 minute dance sequence and then you just threw away all your goodwill with a two second shot of nonchalance <laughs> at least at the end of singing in the rain um with an even more out of place dream sequence i would say it all makes sense in the end because it's a self-referential ending where it's basically let's make a movie together called singing in the rain and that's when you realize oh my god this is the movie i just watched that's incredible with this it kind of feels like as you said, like a tossed in ending that doesn't offer too much. If it just ended with Gene Kelly's depressed woes as a single bachelor losing his love in Paris, it would have been a bittersweet ending where it's like, you know what? At least I've got my paintings. Actually, now that I say it, oh man, I wish that they didn't put that in. <laughs> I actually really <laughs> wish they didn't put that in because that would have been a perfect ending if you think about it. Now, you know, no disrespect to Leslie Caron because she did a great job and she's charming herself. But the fact that she came back in at the very end to kind of save the movie, eh, I wish I was left on the on the editing floor. But we're still at that point, as you said, with the code where you needed 
that kind of an ending, I'm afraid. Because look at the end of Gentleman's Agreement. You have something very similar there. Um, but having said that, you know, we have the good old music by George Gershwin. We have the great directing by Vincent Minnelli, who, of course, is the father of Liza Minnelli, who would continue his su- continue his success in the, in the musical genre. Um, you have the great visuals, the great dancing, both from Kelly and Caron themselves. And everybody else involved. Just so much, so much, so much talent. So I, I'll try and overlook that tossed-in ending. Now, because we have a movie that was so uplifting and cheerful, do you want to list the tide break, like the tide film? That's let's say a little bit more depressing and sad. Yeah, um, you know, tied with an American in Paris is 1955's Marty, um, which is about a middle-aged butcher and a school teacher who have given up on the idea of love, and they meet at a dance and, and fall in love. You know, on the surface, it sounds a little uh, cheesy and be like, of course they found love and blah, blah, blah. But I think this is this is probably the first real film where it's almost like an anti-love love movie. Uh, it was directed by Dilbert Mann and uh, written by Patty Chayefsky, um, a guy who's going to come up in later shows as well, who I know you're a fan of. Um, yeah. And uh, and this has got some pretty interesting adult acting performances, if you want to call it like that. Um, uh, it's got Ernest Borgnine and... Uh, Oh, who played who played the female? Betsy Blair Betsy was Blair, her name. Yes. Uh, who was uh, Gene Kelly's wife? Interestingly enough, um, that's why they're tied. I, I get it now. <laughs> cool. And uh, they, they play these two sort of like early to mid thirties people who sort of you know tired of being set up on dates or having bad dates, and even though they want to be loved and to love someone because they have this space in their heart. They just can't find the right person. And that sort of makes them cynical, especially when everyone around them is like, why aren't you married yet? You need to have a wife and get some kids and do this and blah, blah, blah. And especially like, um, for, for Marty himself, that really gets to him. Um, I think, I think there's this great moment when, um, when he is calling up a woman to ask her out on a date and it's this quiet heartbreaking moment where she is turning him down and he's like, well, what are you doing tonight? Oh, what about next weekend? What about the weekend after that? And it's just so sad and devastating. And the fact that he does this whole performance with his eyes closed the fact, like, that's acting rule number one. Always have your eyes open and looking at the camera because your eyes is where the acting happens. That he was able to sort of disregard that whole thing. And I think it's even more powerful because his eyes are closed because, you know, he's he's trapped in his head. That made such a, a great moment. Um, I'll go into it a little bit later. I have I, I have some quibbles with it, but... You have lots of positive things to say, so how about you jump into that? Yeah, I think there are two very, very, very modernistic things with this film. That's why you have something that's... It's probably the one of the more basic films we're going to get into. It's the, the shortest Oscar-winning film but like of all time, actually, and I don't think that'll change. It comes in at just over an hour and a half. Um, 
So it's it's short, it's to the point, it's very direct. There aren't a lot of complexities to it. You know, as you said, it's just two people who feel miscast in, in, in this movie of the world and they want to find love and they feel hideous and they have to find love and try and like overcome the way they feel about themselves. That's basically it. But there are two modernistic ways that this movie goes above and beyond for me. And this was the movie I was talking about when I said that I thought this was going to be like up there on my list. Unfortunately, ranks so low, and it's unfortunate again because I I absolutely loved this movie. Um, as you said, Borgnine's acting very very modernistic, and we'll see that a little bit more with some of the other performances as, as we get into them. But there, it is nothing to sniff at his performance when he. It's not a very loud performance either. There's only like one or two moments where he has like an emotional outburst. But when he has them, like I, I almost wanted to cry because it felt so real. It felt like, you know, you know this person. This is your uncle that's lonely, that does that's never been married. And he's finally saying what you've assumed about him for all of these years, that he's lonely and he's depressed. And it, it was heartbreaking for me. And then when he's cheerful, he's just so goofy and sincere that... Again, I just want to tear up because it's like, yes, he's finally happy. I can't, I can't fathom what it would have been like to be his age, living at home, working in a in, as a butcher. Like it's just, it's so depressing. But he, he goes with each and every little milestone. Like it's, it's, it's unreal how real. That's a paradox. <laughs> it's, 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 it's too difficult to describe how real Bergeron's performance was, and he was actually one of my top performances of this decade. Now, the other thing that's very modernistic is, as you said, I'm a big Chayefsky fan. Some of the the dialogue is just so humanistic. And I don't know if you noticed this, but it was just like some of the things that would be said, like the ways that his mom would talk, let's say, or the ways that some of the people would talk. Nothing would change visually, but it was almost as if the, the lights were getting dimmer and the shadows were getting stronger just because of how cynical and how damning these people were and some of the things that they were saying like some of it was like the entire movie was poetic with the things it was trying to say i would say but just i feel like the the emotions and the even visually somehow it would change just based on chayefsky's writing and we'll see a lot more of that later on you know when um i complain about um network not winning but we'll get there eventually um but Having said that, it's just it's a very real film. It's almost European in that sense. As you said, it's it's not really a Hollywood romantic film. Now, I know you have some quips to say about it, which I don't know if I fully agree, but maybe if we if we discuss it, we'll maybe see eye to eye with this. So I just found at times it could be a little sexist. Um, you know, uh, Borgnine's friends are all sort of like your typical male chauvinist pigs um, because they're also jaded without love as well. But they keep calling this woman that Borgnine meets a dog and like nonstop. Oh, she's a dog. Oh, she's just an ugly dog. And just nonstop, which... You know, even today, I think people wouldn't really want it. Like, that's an ex- I don't think that's an acceptable thing to say about people. And they were, 
And back then, I don't know either if that was, but like it just seemed like it was just so like in your face about it. And it got to be a little bit grating, actually, that it, it sort of bugged me that every time Borgnine's friends were on screen, I was like, oh, I, I can't wait for this scene to end. It isn't really adding much other than reiterating that, yes, I get it. They're ugly people, ugly by Hollywood standards. They are, they're not pretty people. Um, Instead of focusing more on maybe some of the other aspects about, you know, older love or things like that. So that, that was sort of a, a bit weird for me and I wasn't, I wasn't too sure about how I felt about it. So it sort of lowered my score a little bit. Um, the film sort of takes place in a 24 hour time span and I feel like something like this with its very um, dialogue heavy um, style to be maybe an influence on uh, Richard Linklater's before movies. Do you see any similarities between those? Oh, absolutely. Which as I was saying, you know, this film's very European. A lot of people have, have called Linklater himself, like one of the more European American filmmakers. So absolutely I do. Now I see what you're getting at with this and I do agree to an extent, but to me it adds to the movie a little bit because as you said, these people are despicable and, while for you, you see it as a nagging reminder, like we get it, these, these people are ugly. Bergenine has to separate, or Marty has to separate himself from them. You know, to me, it almost works because it, it's a rare setting where this nagging reminder of unpleasant people makes an, the ending so much stronger, where you see, um, you see Bergenine kind of waiting on whether or not he should call the woman he just met, whether or not he should pursue this because he's, he's had to put up with his mom saying, Oh, she's not for you. You shouldn't, you shouldn't date this person. You deserve better. Even though he's been lonely for like 35 years of his life, you have his friends, as you said, calling, calling her a dog. But he, he comes to the conclusion. It was like, you know what? I'm tired. I want to be happy. And this is the first person who has ever made me happy. And you believe it. You believe it because you see all of this negativity and hatred and selfishness around him where they say, we want what's best for you, but it's really not because they don't want to be associated with this kind of a girl. Neither does the mom. So it's about them in the end. So when he gets, and here's the thing, this is also a very Hollywood kind of ending where he goes to the phone booth and you hear the other end be, and the other end being picked up. So you know that she picked up in the end, even though it's very Hollywoodized and that's probably the most American part of this movie. It still felt very real to me, and it, it, it was one of the few times where we've seen one of those Hollywood cop-out endings, which we've seen so far in this podcast series, where I, I was all for it. I said, yes, thank you for picking up. Thank you, thank you. Get him away from these people. They're monsters. I can't stand them. So to me, it was, it was a relief, and all of the nagging added to that. Lay on the wind in line My side of you In through and through Here on the path of love and meaning From where we
that was the first five films of our Oscar podcast. Um, we're going to be doing episode two, which will be coming out sometime after, which will be counting down the top five. So make sure that you pay attention to those. So to just reiterate, that was The Greatest Show on Earth, Around the World in 80 Days, From Here to Eternity, and then a tie between An American in Paris and Marty. Um, so far, a pretty, a pretty decent set of films, and I think it's just going to get better from here on out. Um, now, where can all of our listeners find you, Andreas? You can find me on Twitter at Andreas Babs. And you can find myself on Twitter at DGAPA. Um, make sure you go to liveinlimbo.com where you can see the show notes. We're going to link to some interesting stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, music this week is from Justin Nizuka. He is a Toronto singer-songwriter who is really hard to pinpoint what his genre is, but music from uh, from this episode is from his latest album, Ulysses. So make sure you uh, you check out the show notes to where you can purchase his music. All right, well, thanks so much for listening, and make sure you tune in to part two to find out what we thought was the number one film of this decade. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>